Thank you, Claire, for reading that to us. Um, good morning. My name is Barry. I'm going from barn dances to a call to holy living. There you go. It's a sort of huge contradictory leap, you might think. Um, the world is full of um, communication problems, and I think that sometimes I think the whole of life is one big misunderstanding. Um, there's, there's all sorts of issues around where you think, I don't think that's really what those people are trying to do, and those people are reacting badly to it, and if only they could talk to each other. There is no greater example of a communication problem than an Englishman abroad. And I'd like to take you now to the banks of the River Vézère in France, with me and my family on holiday. The Vézère flows into the Dordogne, which flows into something else, which flows into the Atlantic. Anyway, um, at some point in this holiday, you have to do a canoe trip. You really have to. Everyone else does. And if you don't, you feel out of it. Um, and then at some point, of course, that means you have to approach a Frenchman and explain to him what you want to do. And instead of just walking up and being normal, you revert to this Englishman abroad style of communication. I'm accepting all of those of you who have made the effort to learn French. So any of you for whom that is true, this is, this is not aimed at you. This is, this is about me. Instead of trying my limited French, I revert to this combination of I assuming that he knows what I'm going to ask him. And I'm pretty sure at some stage I even did a mime, which... <laughs> For the benefit of the one person listening on the recording, that's a, a canoeing action. He was the canoe man. His job was solely the commercial letting out of canoes, and I was going up to talk to him. Why did I need to do that to explain what I was going to talk to him about? And then I reverted to the age-old trap of thinking he would understand if I simply spoke English very, very slowly. Of course, this is entirely fallacious. If he doesn't understand the words I'm using, the speed at which I speak them is completely irrelevant. Of course, he stopped me very quickly. He's very merciful. And he says, oh, okay, you want two canoes? Yeah, this is 50-odd euros. I'll tell you what, I'll pick you, down, pick you up down at your village at 4 o'clock, and then I'll drive you back, and you pick your car up in perfect English. And I'd made the assumption that because he looked a bit scruffy and um, didn't have a tie on, that he'd never learned the language and put me to shame. I, I do feel in, in that moment, I thought, do you know what, that is so often um, the way the church feels the need to explain what it has to other people, to simply go out there and reiterate a message that they don't understand in slow, deliberate language, full of words that end in ISM or something like that. And of course, it's all built on a presumptuous feeling that if only I can explain this clearly, they will flock to me. If only they understand what I'm trying to say, people will come back to the church and they'll embrace it again. And we don't quite grasp, I, I, I mean, you may disagree, this is only an opinion, but I think quite a lot of people out there are quite happy not embracing what the church has to say because they don't actually think it's true or that it matters because they don't see enough in other forms of communication to convince them of what's going on, i.e. lifestyle, i.e. the way we live. Now, there are people I know who are impacted and converted and changed by the word only, by the spirit-filled preaching 
of the Bible. I know that. But I think more and more people are suggesting these days that they need to see much more substance in the lifestyle of somebody who's telling them to do something. Politicians have learned that the hard way, um, and I think that the church is learning it slowly too. There needs to be something different about what we do as the people of God that grips people, that grabs their attention and says, there's something going on there. I have no idea what it is, but there's something going on there, and I'm interested in it. Um, I read this uh, in a book I wasn't supposed to read. I, I pinched it off the shelf up there, and, and I'm jumping the gun a little bit. But it's by Graham Tomlin, and it's called The Provocative Church. It's quite a good title, because the whole point of the book is that the church provokes a reaction in those that look on what it's doing in order to grab their attention and then speak to them of, of deeper things. But he says the first stage in, and he's talking about evangelism, first stage in evangelism, our approach to our non-Christian neighbors is not so much how can we persuade them it's true, but asking how can we make them want to know more? How can we make them want to know more? So, I mean, it all sounds a bit like entrapment, doesn't it, actually? But I think it's much more positive than that. It's about what people see in how we live that makes them want to be interested in why we live that way. Rather than being confronted with a set of truths, so-called, which can only be received as slightly condemnatory and uh, unforgiving, no matter what our intent. And this is what the Bible, I think, calls holy living. The lifestyle that we're called to exhibit to other people is characterized by holy living. Straight away, I'm in trouble. I probably had you there for a minute, but I've lost you by using the word holy. What does holy living conjure up in your mind? Honestly, I'm not looking for the right answer, I'm looking for the honest answer. So if I say holy living, what do you think of? Anyone want to give me a Give me a shout. What, what came to your mind? On, assuming you were listening, of course. That's the right answer, isn't it? But what, what's the picture that comes? That's what it should be. What's the picture that comes if you say holy living? Pardon? Being a monk. Okay, that, that, that's, a quite a good, that's a quite a good picture of what I'm trying to get. Any, anyone else? Faultless. Okay, so it, and, and it, that's unattainable, isn't it? That's actually impossible. Um, so you can instantly see that when we use terms like that, there's a set of baggage associated with the word, which is not intended to be associated with the word, which puts people off straight away. even puts me off. Um, I say even. I don't know why I said even. But um, it does put me off. I think, I don't like that word. I don't understand what it really means. There's a, there's a quote in um, Philip Yancey's famous book, What's So Amazing About Grace, that goes like this. Um, he says, recently I've been asking a question of strangers. When I say the words evangelical Christian, what comes to mind? And in reply, mostly I hear political descriptions, student pro-life activists or gay rights opponents or proposals for censoring the internet. I hear references to the moral majority, an organization disbanded years ago. Not once, not once have I heard a description of grace Apparently, that is not the aroma Christians give off in the world. So when we talk about holy living and what we associate with it at the moment, assuming Philip Yancey is right, and I suspect he is, the message we send out is not the message that is received. 
that what people hear and see is something that's maybe not that helpful. And although my knowledge and background says that holy living should conjure up a positive picture, it actually doesn't, not the words. And that's because it's very hard to paint a positive picture which is gripping and attractive and compelling if it's about lots and lots of things you're supposed not to do. If it's characterizing things you're supposed to eschew or shun, it's a back foot message, it's a defensive message, it's something to do with things that you need to repent of instead of embrace, and it becomes an inherently negative narrative. So I think the problem is in the mind. It's, it's, it's about that picture which is conjured, conjured up when you hear a word. If you're in advertising and in uh, marketing communications, you'll probably know exactly what I mean. What comes to mind when you say that word? And part of it, I think, is the way that we, we read the words. So if you were to pick up this passage, which Claire read and read it in the, in the old King James Version, verse 13 would read slightly differently. But the first three words would be completely different. It would say, <clears throat> gird up the loins of your mind. Now, is that, does that make it clearer? Is that, that really... Um, gird up the loins of your mind, which is a literal translation of the Greek. That's what the Greek says. Now, bear in mind, this is a letter. So it's written by Peter into a context where people would understand what these colloquial phrases would mean. And he says, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, by the time we get to the NIV or the New Living Translation or many others, it's simply become think clearly, which is a bit rubbish, really. It's a thoroughly uninspired way of translating what, that, what Peter's trying to say for the sake of readability. And it's a bit of a trade-off there. Okay, It is much easier to read, but we've lost an undercurrent of what that phrase meant to the people that people are writing to. Now, in Peter's day, people would wear very long, flowing robes. They still do in the Middle East. It's the right thing to wear. It's practical, and, of course, there would have been cultural reasons for it, too. But it's not very mobile. And I know this because my, my, my long-standing memory of getting ordained is nearly tripping up going up the steps of St. Paul's Cathedral, just trying to you know, walk in a skirt. It's just not that easy. So if you want to run, forget it. What you've got to do is pick it up and tuck it into the hem of your belt and free your legs so that they can move. So when it says, gird up the loins of your mind, he's drawing on the analogy of a man running or freeing himself to run, but applying that to your thought life. So straight away, he wants to get us into a positive, you know, mobile, dynamic way of thinking, not what we necessarily associate with holy so for Peter, the, the word is a, di it's a dynamic concept, something to do with movement and change and running and freeing yourself, not hampering yourself. And actually, holiness usually, it colloquially, means the opposite. It doesn't mean freeing yourself up at all. It means restricting yourself. So girding up the loins of your mind means to free yourself of um, something that would stop you moving, stop you going forward, um, and being energetic and positive. And then it moves on and says in, in um, let's, let's look at verses 13 to 17. Um, and particularly verse 16, the scriptures say, you must be holy because I am holy, referring to God. 
So holiness, having established that it's actually about a positive, dynamic thing, not a restrictive thing, it's about reflecting the nature of God. So if, if we read that verse and say, you are holy, therefore I must be holy, we can either say, oh, that's because I owe God a duty of holiness, and straight away we become religious, or we can say, you are holy, therefore I must be holy, because I am a reflection of you. If I reflect you accurately, God, I will be holy. And that can only be positive. That's not a religious thing to do with keeping rules. It's about something that is radically inspiring and puts me in the line of God's light and glory as a reflective mirror of what he's like. Be holy because I am holy. I create, I sustain, I save, I heal, I love, I mourn with the sorrowful, I rejoice with the happy. That's what being holy is like, so try and be like me. Be holy because I am holy. And there are ways of living, of course, that reflect that image of God and ways of living that do not. If they do not, I would question whether they are holy at all. What does holy mean, after all? If you look in the dictionary, it may not necessarily help you because it will say something like this, dedicated or consecrated to God or sacred. And that's partially true. I I can't say that that's untrue. But unhelpful because it, it starts to conjure up images of sacred places, sacred buildings or sacred practices that are assumed to have the power to point to God in some way independent of us and and our attitudes and hearts. My feeling, my my suggestion here, and I'm throwing this out there, is something is holy if it orientates people towards God and not away. If it points to Jesus or it points to the Father, it points to the fact that we are called to be children of God and inspires that reaction in us. And many practices that are come to be regarded as holy don't do that necessarily. If it's purely ritual, if it's purely dress code, if it's purely certain styles of music and worship, whatever they are, if they don't point to God, then they cannot really be said to be holy anymore. And even a credibility gap between words and behavior would would constitute the same thing. If you read Acts 2, Acts 2 verse 44, it will say that the the church grew in favor with the people. You know the context of Acts 2 where the church is exploding in growth and that they're seeing signs and wonders. They've got a certain lifestyle that apparently grew in favor with the people. Now do you think that means that they went around people-pleasing? just doing things to be nice. It may, may do. I doubt it. I think it means that they grew in favor with the people because the people saw something radically different in them and were inspired by it to join them. And that, I think, is what holy really means. Behavior and lifestyle that points people to God. Emulating God's heart, reflecting his image to people and fulfilling our call to be 
ambassadors for Christ or um, emissaries for God, mirrors of his character for other people to see. If it points people to God, then it's holy. If it erects a barrier to God, I don't think it is. Remember when Jesus died, the curtain which led to the holy of holies was split from the top to the bottom. And it was just God indulging in picture language, saying the barrier to me is open. I want you to be drawn to me, not excluded from me. And what my son has just done on the cross has made that possible. Thirdly, there's another interesting phrase here which um, Paul writes in verse 17. Live in reverent fear of him, that's God, during your time as foreigners in the land. So you are where you are. You're living in what has always been regarded as your home. And God now says you are foreigners in the land. What does it mean to be a foreigner in the land? Now, it can be misused. I, I, I remember in my childhood people singing songs that went, this world is not my home, I'm only passing through. Has anyone ever sung that song? This is going back a long way, okay? Um, Pre-Reformation, more or less. Um, <laughs> but there's this concept that I'm a foreigner in this land, I don't belong to it, and my real home is in heaven. Now, I know there's an awful lot of um, stuff that you could say about that which, which would affirm that to be true as the source of our hope, our eternal hope. But it does carry a, a very negative danger that we see no responsibility to where we are now and that it's all about then and somehow it'll all come good in the end. A Christian, I believe, is someone who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven but living in the kingdom of this world. And very deliberately so. His purpose is to be there to bring the kingdom of heaven into this world. To show its values, passions, thoughts, priorities. And point people again to God. To live as a foreigner in the land. Not as someone who lives in a ghetto. But as someone who is becoming not assimilated to the values of this world. But is bringing their culture and offering it to the people who live here. You can probably think of many examples of cultures who have come to this country and they've offered their culture to us and we've taken it and said, we really like that. Most restaurants that we go to are probably in that category these days. It doesn't have to be um, this negative reaction we have sometimes or that you hear about some people having to being a foreigner. Foreigner here doesn't mean somebody on holiday or someone in exile. It's a long-term resident exhorted by God to bring good news, bring the salt and light and flavor of their culture into this other culture that needs it and will value it. And Peter urges his followers to live holy lives that bring the kingdom of heaven where they come from to the kingdom of this world where they're living. And that's about living distinctively about being fantastically different not just in what we say but mostly in what we are and therefore do I 
uh, just, uh, just a reflection, and again, you're perfectly free to disagree with me. It's the 10th anniversary today of 9-11, of, um, isn't it? And um, quite understandably, there's an awful lot of focus on that and, and reflection on what's gone on. And although you look about what the reaction to 9-11 was, and I, I listened to a play on the radio yesterday um, charting the, um, the American president's reaction in, during the day. It was quite a, clever, uh, quite a clever play. And of course, quite naturally at the time, it was all about vengeance and making those who were responsible pay the price for what they'd done. You may look at what's happened in the, in, in the ensuing 10 years and say and ask yourself, was it effective? Has it, has it achieved what it set out to do? Maybe it has. I don't know. You might also ask yourself, was it justified? And you may even answer, yes, it was. Time will tell. But bear in mind, it was for, for predominantly Christian nations who reacted, whatever that term may mean, was it distinctive? Did we, the nations of Christendom, if we still deserve that title, go about resolving that conflict in a way that was distinctively Christian as Christ would understand that term, or not? Have we solved the problem? Have we merely moved the problem into phase two or phase three and perpetuated it? I'm not sure that what we did was that distinctive. It may have been justified. It may have been effective. I think there are doubts about both of those. But was it distinctive? I don't know. And there is an opportunity in a crisis like that to offer distinctive Christian responses that don't repay evil with evil, but don't discount the original evil either. That's extremely difficult. But that is distinctive, holy living that speaks volumes to a watching world. Now, for us as individuals, um, we, we will seldom, if ever, get faced with problems like that. But we have equivalents of it every day. Opportunities to be distinctive in our speech, the way we talk. Uh, Paul writes a very similar passage in Colossians 3 um, about holy living, where, where one of the things he's concerned about is what comes out of our mouths, the, the way we speak to people and about them. And he urges them to amend that and put put to death and, 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 and uh, remove unhelpful speaking. Because language reflects what's in our heart. Um, I've had calls on occasions to stop and ponder uh, Christian behavior in shops and restaurants. Where you think, why are you speaking to that person like that just because you're paying money? It doesn't give you the right to speak to them like that and you're supposed to be a Christian. And I've been embarrassed in restaurants sometimes at that kind of snappy-fingered attitude towards employees, not slaves. I think that's not distinctive. That's just the same as anybody else. That's not living differently. What line do you take in conflicts in the workplace? Conflicts in the workplace can be quite powerful things and, and do great damage. What is your role in negative relational situations? Do you make them... <clears throat> Excuse me, do you make them better or worse? Negative situations are a massive, massive opportunity to live distinctively, to show people other ways 
of resolving things which come from the heart of Christ and not from the wisdom of the world. We have an opportunity to live distinctively in our use of money and lifestyle, um, not just in patronizing um, uh, things like fair trade and, and supporting things like that, but everything that we do and the way we use our possessions and so on. It's a very convicting thought for me, um, that, that whole area of, of what I do with, with money, with generosity, and, and our attitude of gratitude for what we have, regardless of what we do with it, what we pray for and about in that area. A very heavy self-orientation for that still persists in my, in my own life, and I think I need to grapple with that. That's not distinctive. Also, being servants. Just read a, a great book about servant evangelism and how, how the world responds to people lowering themselves, humbling themselves, and behaving like, like Christ. And finally, joyful living. You know, verse 18 talks here about being ransomed, about being freed. And holy living for me is about being joyful about that fact, appreciating what it means and showing it in our everyday life, that we should go around with, at the very least, a glass-half-full attitude, if not a glass-flowing-over and overflowing attitude. And there's no real justification sometimes for the, um, the heavy hearts that um, we carry around. And, and again, the fingers pointing at me, I think I, I need to sort of exhibit. The, the joy is in there, but it needs to let my face know every now and again and, and, in, and flow over into some of the ways that I interact with other people. All of that, for me, is holy living. Much, much less to do with what we do in, in this space here, particularly at the front here. I mean, this is this is, there's a definition of holy that includes what we do in, in sacrament. But I think it's a much broader and more dynamic definition. What the Bible calls holy means set apart. It means different, distinctive, and pointing to God. In the early church, it resulted in a lifestyle that was so radical and different that it won favor with the people and caused people to come to Christ. It is a dynamic and positive concept. It has a power associated with it, not just of awe for God in worship, but overflowing in a lifestyle of distinctiveness, of difference. And it is the language of God. It's um, the universal language that everyone understands. And something that is so compelling when it's done sincerely and continually and genuinely that people want to know more. They want to understand more. And at that point, we tell them, well, this is the cross. This is what God's done for me. This is why I live the way I do. And that's why I feel uh, forgiven and in, in relationship with God and in a good place with him. And that's what's on offer to you if you come and join our church. John, can I invite you, the worship team, to come up?